Life is 10% about what happens and 90% about how you respond. You can either pity yourself and act like a victim, or you can puff up your chest and just say, hey man, like this happened for me. I'm gonna find a way to turn this into my superpower. Welcome to Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. And in this show, I interview professionals of all types, whether it be corporate stars, business owners, or entrepreneurs, and just talk about what's allowed them to be so successful so far. And today I have Aaron Abadie. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to getting into it. So you work in uh, real estate here in Central Florida, and we're kind of talking about the different things that are going on in real estate, how you got into it, and just what your thoughts are on the market right now, among some other things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we just exited probably the most rampant and robust real estate market we've ever seen. Uh, and we're in a special marketplace here in Central Florida. So um, that was really exciting being part of that you know, upward trend. And now that interest rates are coming up and the Fed is trying to fight inflation by any means necessary, uh, realtors have a very uh, integral role in making sure that people know what their options are and how to approach the market in a safe, uh, predictable way. So, What do you feel like are some of the biggest things that go into approaching it in a safe and predictable way? So for a buyer, just understanding what your buying power is relative to what the market has to offer. Even though interest rates have gone up, people highly underestimate how far their pre-approval can get them in a marketplace. Right. And they highly overestimate the resistance that the market will give them. So it's a real estate agent's job, a good real estate agent's job to make sure they understand what their buying power is relative to what the market has to offer and how to maximize and capitalize on those opportunities. What are some tips that you would give in those lines along uh, just in the way of uh, maximizing your buying power? Yeah. So the most leverage that you can get for an investment purchase, for example, I like to give this as an example for someone looking to house hack their way into some cash flow. Uh, you can qualify for an FHA loan, which means the down payment is only three and a half percent. Yeah. It's a government assisted loan. They'll, they'll need two years of tax returns, but you can put three and a half percent down on a property up to four units. So really, yeah, you can put three and a half percent down. Let's say you buy a quadplex for, you know, five, six hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Your down payment is less than 20 grand and you just bought some cash flow. Right. I had no idea about the up to four units thing. I guess most people just wouldn't be thinking about that as their first house, but it might make a lot of sense to just prolong your first house until you can go for something like that. Yeah. I mean, if you're single, you don't have a lot of, uh, you haven't maybe accelerated your lifestyle, Mm -hmm. as maybe some of your cohorts may have. Yeah. Um, You can take that risk and, you know, it's really paid off for a lot of my friends. What was your first kind of dabble into real estate yourself? So I got into real estate at the modest age of 19. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of uh, thrown on me and I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. As I mentioned earlier, there's so many different ways to make money in real estate. It's very broad. Yeah. And that's the challenge for a lot of real estate entrepreneurs is understanding what their niche should be and capitalizing on that. But for me, it was uh, being an inside sales agent. So I was setting appointments for real estate agents. And when those agents converted those appointments, I would get paid a percentage of that commission. 
Um, and I remember we were talking about off air, you had had a few different jobs before that, nothing that really kind of satisfied the income that you were looking for personally, or gave you kind of the growth potential that you wanted. And then all of a sudden you're making these big commissions and, and you just feel like, okay, this, this could be something. Yeah. The proof of concept was definitely there. And, you know, at the time, like making $3,500, $4,000 on, on one deal, like that was a lot of money for me. Yeah. And it's still, I mean, it's still a good amount of money. So um that was especially at like this was when you were still in college or right after this was when i was in college it was my junior year i had just Mm -hmm. rushed zbt Mm -hmm. and uh all my friends were kind of like watching me making sure that you know i was gonna do what i said i was gonna do because i was captive one day i was like hey i just got my real estate license i'm Mm -hmm. really excited but you know i knew nothing about real estate (laughs) yeah um it was really cool to to see the results that that i got in the first few months and um I will say I have to give a lot of credit to the team that I was on. They had a really almost militant style of generating leads and and the structure that we had in the office. Um, I definitely attribute a lot of my success to that. We were in the office every day from like 8 to 12, 1 minimum. Wow. And, you know, most real estate agents aren't in the office every day. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but I I really operate well with that structure and with that certainty. And uh, I got into a good flow. I sold 23 houses my first year, 33 houses my second year. And it's wild. It's been about, you know, five and a half years, obviously, with the pandemic and the ebbs and flows of just being a young entrepreneur and mm-hmm. commission only environment. Um, it's been very exciting. But now I'm starting to find some consistency in my business. And um, it's it's been a lot of fun. You mentioned that off air a little bit ago, the commission only environment. I thought that would be a really interesting thing to touch on because that's so different from the kind of typical career path, right? Like when you're, you've got hourly or salary pay that you're kind of used to, you can count on that has been established. When, when did you first go commission only with that? Was that as soon as you started as a real estate agent or was there like a base pay at first? So there was a base pay at first. I will say that's an opportunity that most real estate agents don't get. But um, as an inside sales agent, I was making like two grand a month. Mm-hmm. and then a percentage of the appointments that converted. Right. And the percentage of the commission ultimately was a lot more than my salary. Mm-hmm. Like it was like 10% of whatever the commission was. And if the average commission is $7,000, if I make another $700 on a, an appointment that converted, I didn't even have to like represent the client or anything like that. Um, I could easily double I could easily double or triple my, my income just by being really good on the phones. But that opportunity, I was only in that role for like, two months, two or three months. And then once I started to see how much money the agents were making, you know, I, I wanted some of that. So. Yeah. <laughs> and they were, uh, they were base plus commission or just commission? No, they were hundred percent commission. So was that kind of scary when you first decided to do that? Or had you just seen the proof of concept enough by then? It was definitely a little intimidating because I knew it would be really hard to go back, you know? Mm-hmm. So at first, yeah, it was intimidating, but like, you know, I'm a, I'm an all or nothing kind of guy anyway. Yeah. Burn and, the bridges behind you. Yeah, and I, I love to get, you know, I, I love being able to get paid for the results that I can deliver. If, you know, someone is determining what you're worth to them hourly or by how much time you spend on the floor, it doesn't really matter how well you do. Yeah. Luckily, in this position, it was a hybrid option where I got paid a base and I was able to make some commission. But, you know, when you see other people making seven, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in a single deal, um, it's hard not to want to chase after that. So, um, yeah. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges being in that commission only environment? Staying consistent with lead generation. You know, it's really easy to start counting your commissions. And part of that's necessary to 
project for you know income and keep your P&Ls straight for, for when yeah. you have to file your taxes. But um, staying consistent with the lead generation, you can easily get caught up in you know managing the transaction and babysitting certain transactions when at the end of the day, like your, your number one job is to generate high quality leads mm-hmm. and guide them and navigate them through the transaction. Speaking about generating high quality leads, you had mentioned earlier that you were lucky enough to be on a team that had this kind of militant style about generating leads. What are some of the things that go into that and what have you found to be successful for generating leads as a whole? I'm glad you brought that up because that's everyone's number one problem, right? It is. So I learned at Keller Williams how to make phone calls, set appointments, and convert those appointments, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to overcomplicate it. And it was very much sales-based, right? There was very little marketing involved in generating those leads. Yeah. Today, I'm at a luxury real estate brokerage where there's a huge emphasis on marketing. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm here today. Like, mm-hmm. there's a, a huge ROI on having a, a brand where people are coming to you, that attraction marketing. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, I didn't even you know, spend any, any of my time there. And I was still able to generate a lot of results, um, being sales oriented. So we were calling kind of just doing a lot of reach out and calling kind of outbound marketing versus outbound lead generation versus inbound. Right. So at Keller Williams, they teach you to like nurture your database, tell everybody, Hey, I got into real estate, you know, I'm starting a career in real estate. None of my friends were old enough to buy any houses. Yeah. At least they knew. And that was like the beginning of me building my brand as their guy in real estate, which Mm -hmm. is cool because, you know, again, no one else my age was in real estate at the time. I was a junior in college. And once everyone started becoming of age to buy houses, they got their first job from, you know, NASA, Lockheed, KPMG, whatever. Um, I have a lot of cool friends. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) you know, they bought their first house from me. And the impact that comes from it was amazing. But, um, you know, as far as the outbound, it's a really there, cool thing to be able to provide to your friends too, is just the, that opportunity to get in their first house and have the kind of peace of mind of having the, someone that they already trust guide them through that. Nothing like it, man. Yeah. I mean, some of my most special experiences in real estate have come from, you know, intimate transactions and competitive situations where, you know, all the odds were stacked against us. There was a, there was one time a good friend of mine, he had a baby on the way and, you know, like it was super competitive. There was a house in a neighborhood in Ashington Park. Yeah, yeah, I lived there for a little bit during college. So I sold one of my really good friends a house there in Ashington. It was like August of 2020. And then our mutual good friend, he's about to have a baby. Like it was game time. And mm-hmm. this was like in the middle of the most competitive market we've ever seen. He was approved for an FHA loan. And there was like 35 offers on the house. There was wow. no way we should have got this house. And I just was really honest with the real estate agent. I was like, look, man, like this family needs a house. We're willing to do whatever it takes. And, you know, I would even reduce my commission if that's what it came down to. But like, we're willing to make this happen. Let me know if there's anything you can do. And God showed his favor upon us, bro. We got the house and two of my really good friends, you know, they're really good friends are in the same neighborhood right before the baby was delivered. So, you know, those moments mean everything to me, man. Yeah. That's uh, 35 offers on the house. That's a hugely competitive environment. What do you think are some of the things that go into being able to come out on top in that competitive of an environment, just and be the one that actually makes it, makes the offer? Was it like, do you think you made the right offer at the right time or was there more than that that went into it? Yeah, again, you know, there was, there was no really good reason why we got the house. Yeah. We put our best foot forward. I will say we put our best foot forward 
and it starts with the relationship with the listing agent. You know, if you're representing a buyer and it's not like they didn't have a strong approval. I mean, they, they definitely had the wherewithal to buy the house, but with 35 offers on the home, there were cash offers, conventional offers. Yeah. Probably higher than the, the price that we offered on the home. So And probably all with plenty of means to get it. Exactly. Yeah. 5%, 20%, all cash, you know, like yeah. it was a really competitive situation, but the listing agent, you know, he was, he showed empathy for sure. And again, man, like I, I didn't think we would get the house, but I was so happy when we did. And obviously the family was over the moon when they heard yeah. the good news. Cause we, we had been shopping for like three or four months at that point. Wow. Um, and you know, that has to start to get really stressful, right? Like yeah. when you're shopping for that long, how, how long would you say on average, someone that you work with is shopping? So it depends on, on how competitive the market is mm-hmm. and their buying power relative to it. Yeah. Right? So, um, but if you're pre-approved and you're motivated, um, I'd say it takes probably less than five or 10 showings to submit an offer mm-hmm. and how motivated you are or how well you can cash flow that deal or how well you can house hack that deal depending oh, on plays into what it. your situation is. Um, but I usually get, you know, my clients under contract within the first three to four offers. Again, it really depends on the situation, but, sure. um, but yeah. I'm pretty efficient. I like to say. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing you had talked a little bit about is having the relationship with the listing agent. I kind of wanted to expand on that a little bit. I think a huge part of real estate, anything involving sales, really, really anything that you do is so relationship based. How are some way, what are some ways that you kind of curate those relationships or, or develop relationships that you've found to help you throughout that? Yeah. So, I mean, especially in Orlando, like the real estate community is this big. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that from the moment you call an agent to schedule a showing or, you know, whenever you're negotiating with someone, even if you don't think they're going to give you an offer that the seller's going to accept, that you carry your, yourself in a way that, you know, that they want to work with you in the future. Um, so it's really important just to, you know, keep that in mind at all times. You never know when you're going to see this agent again or when they're going to have another listing that, you're going to have a buyer one day that's interested in. So, um, so yeah, I would just say, you know, be mindful of that. And from the moment you schedule the showing, just like dot your I's, cross your T's and, you know, put your best foot forward. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to kind of touch on is you had described this being in this highly competitive market. And I think that's kind of started to change a little bit. What were, what was that like going through that, going from the highly competitive market to it kind of slowing a little bit? What has it been like so far? So with interest rates having gone up, I mean, you can literally feel the amount of buyers in the market changing. Yeah. And I mean, you see it on Zillow. Asking prices are coming down. We're seeing negative. We're not seeing negative price growth yet, right? Like prices are still appreciating. The market's still growing. But asking prices are coming down to meet buyer affordability. Right. right? It's still a seller's market. And because we have supply issues like there's not enough homes available for the buyers that are looking here prices are still rising but because interest rates have gone up you see asking prices come down especially on like multifamily investment properties cash flow okay. yeah cash flow is becoming more uh, expensive to purchase yeah right? so therefore even though the market's the, the the market rent is keeping the the values propped up at a certain amount because interest rates have gone up most retail buyers who are getting an FHA loan to house hack that property aren't able to afford as much. So um, sellers are definitely feeling it. Do you think that that's kind of a representation of the entire market in Florida right now? Or do you see 
I guess it might be tough to tell being so focused on Central Florida, but do you think Central Florida is kind of mirroring the rest of Florida right now? That's a great question. I think primary markets are more resilient and more insulated to any downward pressure that you'll see. So, for example, I just sold a home in Ocoee for five sixty-five mm-hmm. in four days. Wow. Interest rates at the time were averaging around 7%, but I will say the house was super renovated and there was a comp across the street, comparable sale, for 600000 So it was the only offer we got on the property, mm-hmm. right? It, there wasn't seven offers, 10 offers, but the, the, the buyer was putting 20% down, conventional loan, and the lender waived the appraisal. So there, there's no... Oh, wow. Yeah, there's no... Uh, yeah question as to whether or not it will it will appraise or whether or not the seller will get that number is that common for the lender to waive the appraisal i would think not but yeah no, not at all um i mean unless you're putting like 20 to 25 percent down then the lender's most likely going to do an appraisal but um if they have if the buyer's really strong buyer and like they have a they're putting a lot of money down and they have a really good job remember you're getting a loan against your income it's not against the house in mm-hmm. most cases the, the lender is giving you a loan against the income that you make right. secured by the house. Right. Yeah. So if you lose your job or something, they'll take the house, but they want the, they want, they want you to make their payments. Speaking of it being based on income. Yeah. Oh yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Cheers, by the way. Cheers, brother. Speaking of it being based on your income, right. One thing I've talked about a little bit, and this is, very relevant to me personally. So a little bit of a selfish question here. I've, I've talked to people in real estate about how it's a lot more difficult to kind of break into a real estate investment or buying a house, whatever that be, may be for you. If you're uh, a business owner, if you're kind of an entrepreneur, just because it's you've got a little bit less of a stable situation to look at. Have you seen challenges around that kind of as you've gone through that? Um, just dealing with people that are that don't have conventional jobs? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, being self-employed, it's definitely a lot more difficult to obtain financing as opposed to someone who has a W-2 job. Mm-hmm. You know, they get a paycheck every week. And if you recently graduated college and you have a job offer letter, you can get you can, you can qualify for a loan just based on that. In most wow. Cases. But if you're self-employed, especially when you're self-employed, most entrepreneurs, most business owners, they're writing off a lot of their expenses. So the qualifying income or, or the income that they put on their tax returns isn't enough to justify a three, four, five hundred thousand dollar loan for, exactly. for primary residence. I struggle with the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I the first few years I was in real estate, wrote off pretty much everything because I didn't want to pay any money in taxes. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't thinking long term enough realizing that, damn, one day I'm going to want to like buy a house and house hack my way to freedom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with that right now. Excuse me. There you but, go. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, you could do a bank statement loan, um, which is really popular for self-employed individuals, uh, which is actually a really common loan program that we offer. I have a, a buddy of mine right now. He makes really good income. Like You said a bank statement loan? Yeah, a bank statement loan. So they'll see what your deposits amount to wow. month over month and year over year. And as long as you have 12 to 24 months of bank statements showing consistent deposits, mm-hmm. then you can qualify based on that. Your interest rate really? will be slightly higher, gotcha. but it is a creative way for business owners to get into a home or to get into an investment property. 
uh, without having a traditional, you know. Yeah, I had never heard of that. How big of a interest rate increase does that tend to be? It's kind of like you're electing to have it assessed that way in exchange for a slightly higher interest rate. Exactly. Yeah. Don't quote me on this, but I think it would be at least one or two percentage points higher. Gotcha. And I would venture to assume that it's a non-conforming loan, which means the government doesn't buy these loans, right? So like an FHA loan, a conventional loan, the government will buy those loans, right? They'll throw them into like a AAA rating and, you know, they'll sell them on the bond market. But mm-hmm. non-conforming loans, um, the government doesn't buy them. Gotcha. So they're a little less secure in that sense. Gotcha. So a little less security, a little higher interest rate that you're trading for that. Exactly. But you don't have to you don't have to forego the writing off of all the expenses that you're used to writing off. Right. Ideally, you you will want to put some qualifying income on your on your tax returns. Like that's mm-hmm. the easiest way to do it, and that's what I'm doing now. My goal in the next probably six to eight months, depending on the, what the market does, is to buy a you know triplex, quadplex. I think triplex would be kind of that sweet spot because interest rates are a little high to justify buying a duplex. Mm-hmm. It'd be pretty difficult to cash flow a duplex right now. Yeah. Um, unless you're putting like 20% down. But if you want to do FHA, um, I think a triflex is the way to go. Gotcha. Yeah. So zooming back out a little bit, we got right into the real estate talk pretty heavy there. I did, I did want to talk a little bit about your background though, and just how you got into it. We mentioned kind of how you started a little bit, but um, what was the biggest thing aside from like the money making and some of the opportunities you got, what were some of the other big things at play when you realized that real estate was the way to go for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I come from pretty humble beginnings. Like I didn't have a ton growing up, but I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. You know, I heard that word and I was like, whatever that is, like I want, yeah. I want some of that action. It just sounds cool. Yeah. It sounds cool. And you know, that's how this country is built. You mm-hmm. know, like we live in a capitalistic society and the way the tax codes are written up, it rewards people who takes those risks and reinvest yeah. that money back into the economy. You know, I didn't know it at that level when I got into the game, but mm-hmm. I saw the proof of concept that I was able to make, you know, good income, especially for my age, uh, selling real estate. So that's kind of why I stuck with it. And then the world opened up and real estate kind of became everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it just kind of fell in my lap. And then I, uh, you know, life always gives you what, what you ask of it. So I just yeah. kept putting my head down. And again, you know, the environment is super impactful. So as long as you put yourself in an environment that's conducive to your goals, you can expect to see a lot of results. But I think too many people try to do it on their own or, uh, you know, they let their ego get in the way and it it ends up being a lot more difficult than it needs to be. You said putting yourself in an environment that's conducive to your goals. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that concept um, is perfectly illustrated in, uh, what's that book? James Clear, mm. Atomic Habits. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't read this, but I, I need to, because I've heard it suggested so many times. Phenomenal book. I mean, it's, it's as simple as like, if you want to reduce the amount of screen time that you, you have on your phone before you go to bed, mm-hmm. put your phone in a different room. Yeah. Right. And it'll also help you when you wake up in the morning because the alarm is in a different room. You literally have to get up, walk over there to snooze the alarm. I'm in the kind of the midway point of that. I have mine just on the other side of my room. There you go. I mean, whatever works works for you. Yeah. Just make it easier to achieve your goals and those small wins compound over time. So, you know, working from home for me is a big, you know, like energy killer Mm -hmm. because as you know, I'm on the phone with people 
facing rejection, dealing with a lot of like stressful conversations at times. And if there's no one else in the room to like hype me up or say, hey, maybe you should have said this or like, good job. How did that conversation go? Congrats on that pre-approval. It's uh, really difficult to keep that fire burning by yourself. So, um, you know, before I got into real estate before the pandemic, so it was like really Mm -hmm. easy to be in the office a lot. But, you know, times have changed a lot, even in the last three or four years. And now it's like even more important for me to be in the office, lead generating and calling with other people who are on the same mission. So, um, you know, there's even times where I'll go like lead generate with some of my realtor friends at their office just because like the energy is really good. Like other offices? Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, you're doing the same thing. 100%. What does a typical day look like for you in lead generation? I, I know you mentioned earlier when we were talking that your week kind of like from day to day, it varies a little bit. You kind of have these cycles of like when you're working on certain things, I guess maybe walk us through like a typical week for you. Yeah. So that's the benefit of being an entrepreneur is uh, no two days are the same, it's right? Very true. But there is a lot of value in having consistency. So yeah. Um, Mondays are typically a little slower just because the consumers, you know, clients are getting back to work and they don't really have a lot of time to talk real estate on Monday unless they're like highly motivated and they need to see a house in the afternoon or something. But Mondays are typically really good for processing transactions, getting offers in from over the weekend. And there's enough downtime for me to spend some time marketing or, you know, doing something like this where I can uh, create some content and, you know, get my brand out. Um, but every day I do like to get up and go to the gym. Um, I have a friend who, you know, first thing before you get started, first thing before you get started, make sure you're in a peak, peak state. I always feel like if you can challenge yourself that early in the morning, then whatever life throws at you throughout the day, it's a lot easier to, to overcome it. If you already know how hard you've tested yourself in the morning. So, um, you know, around right now it's about 6am we're going to the gym Mm -hmm. six to seven, you know, we get in there, get out, uh, mostly weight training. And then, from like 7.30 to 10 is focused on lead generating activities. So, you know, outbound prospecting, uh, following up with past clients, things like that, nurturing the group of people, my community of people that have either transacted with me already or are looking to transact in the future. And then in the afternoon, there's a lot of follow-up that takes place because you can lead generate all day, Mm -hmm. but if you're not following up and converting these leads, then you're just having a lot of conversations that might not amount to anything. You got to kind of put the clamps on and say, Hey, you told me that you had a goal to buy a house or to invest in real estate. When's a good time for us to grab some coffee or see some houses or Mm -hmm. et cetera, whatever that next step is. Um, and then I do have coaching once a week, um, which has been super impactful in my business. I recommend it to anyone who wants to take their business to the next level. And, um, you got to realize that it's more than just business coaching. Like, I heard, I heard this quote one time in Keller Williams, your business will only grow to the extent that you do, right? You can't expect your business to grow more than you, mm-hmm. right? Makes sense. Yeah. So one, you got to make sure that you're always challenging yourself, whether that be physically, mentally, ideally both, mm-hmm. um, spiritually, emotionally, those are all areas of your life that, you know, you, you need to expand on. Um, and if you neglect them, they will show up in your life and probably your business too. I think a lot of growth, whether it be personal or business-wise, comes from defeating maybe preconceived notions or thought patterns that you're stuck in. What have been some big ones for you personally, whether it be personal or business? Yeah, I don't make others people's. I don't make decisions for other people. Yeah, right. Like you ever feel like, damn, you know, I don't want to call them because they might be busy, mm-hmm. or 
you know, I, I mean, that's a great example. Like, give them a call. There's no reason why you shouldn't call them. If you leave somebody a voicemail and you call them back the next day, like, did you bother them? Would you be offended by that? No. no. So why do we get in our own way? And I think that just comes with, like, the amount of volume, like, the amount of calls that we're making. It can, you know, because sometimes people say, hey, it's not a good time. But, like, again, you don't make others, other people's decisions for them. And uh, that's something that my coach has told me more than a couple times. So mm-hmm. um, that's a big one. And then, I mean, I mean, that's that's probably been the biggest one. But, you know, having a coach is definitely super impactful because not only – so let me back up. My co- I've gone through a few different coaches. Really? Okay. I, I wanted to start – actually, I was going to kind of zoom out anyway and ask what led to the decision to first get a coach. Was it kind of seeing other people have them, hearing about it? So when I was on my first real estate team, you know, that team, we sold like 300 houses a year and we had a yeah. team of like 10 people. Wow. Okay. Right. The a lot of accountability. A lot of accountability. The Pareto principle was definitely in effect. Like 20% of the people accounted for 80% of the business, mm-hmm. but I was writing like three to five contracts every single month, you know, like 20 to 35 houses a year. And, um, my team leader was a coach. He coached other real estate agents. Okay. And like, you know, I could coach other real estate agents. It's a very high ROI activity to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like turn into that guru-esque model because it's a little less stressful and more predictable. So there is a lot of benefit in getting a coach. You just want to make sure you align with the right coach. And that right. the coach that you hire, um, you know, that they have the same values and principles that you want to see in your business. Um, I think that leads perfectly into what you were getting to a second ago, which is that you've been through multiple coaches. Exactly. So what was the process like for you kind of shopping through that and determining what the right fit was for you? So, I mean, on my team, we had a in-house coach. Mm -hmm. Um, His name's Taylor. He's the man. If you're looking for a coach, go check him out. Um, And he's just like general business coaching. So he worked for Keller Williams Maps Coaching, which is a specific like coaching arm of Keller Williams for real estate agents. Gotcha. Okay. And he was an assistant to a high level coach for many years from the young age of 19. He's my coach is actually younger than me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But he's a beast. Yeah. So, um, he was an assistant to a real estate coach for a few years. And then he moved down from Utah around the same time that I had like rejoined the team. So we're both like in this like Genesis phase of, coming back on the team and like yeah. building a lot of momentum in our business. And he ended up branching off and like, instead of focusing on the real estate side of things, focusing on his coaching business. So it was almost like, again, fell in my lap, mm-hmm. this, uh, the, the coaching opportunity. But, perfect uh, timing for both of you. Perfect timing. Exactly. But I did leave uh, that Keller Williams organization after a year of being back on the team. And when I left, I stopped coaching with Taylor because I felt like, you know, maybe uh, it, intentions were maybe muddled or something. Like I just needed to start all over. That was my own limited thinking. Um, I hired a Tom Ferry coach, and it was cool. But I realized that there is a rapport building process that has to happen with your coach for it to be effective. And although he was a very good coach and you know had a lot of high level tactics that come from the Tom Ferry organization, I realized that. I had much better rapport with Taylor and you know even though there were a lot of high level tactics there was so much time spent on like covering the basics that I felt like I wasn't getting the value that mm. I, I needed uh, from my coach and it took like 
you know, three months to really get into a groove where he knew where I was at in my business, the cadence to which I operate and how to effectively coach me through those steps. So um, I fired my Tom Ferry coach and then uh, I hit Taylor back up. He had since then um, started his own coaching business. He left that team and, you know. Oh, cool. Yeah. So he's a full time coach. Yeah. Um, and he coaches like wholesale companies, title companies, real estate agents. Coaching is a very unique skill set. You don't right. need to know how to run a title company to know how to coach somebody who's in the title. What are some, obviously you're not a coach yourself. It sounds like you have thought about doing a little coaching, maybe done some like informally. What are some things that you've observed that are skills that a coach has that makes it so unique? Being able to zoom out and ask why your your client, you know, if you're a coach, is uh, making the decisions that they're making, mm. right? Um, the most effective way to teach someone something is through self-discovery. So like if I ask you a question to something, I probably already know the answer to it, but I want you to answer it so that you can go through the mental framework it takes to like, you know, go through that moment. That yeah. Moment. Um, but I think it's easier to realize and picture something if you're saying it to yourself than hearing it from someone else. Yeah, that too. And he definitely, I mean, my coach has a framework for how he coaches his clients. Like we have an Excel spreadsheet and there's like seven different worksheets that we have that outlay that basically outline like who you want to be someday, mm-hmm. you know, long-term goals, what your perfect work week looks like, um, strategic partnerships. There's a lot of different ways that we um, organize our activities so that way they're effective. Because again, as an entrepreneur, no two days are the same, Yeah. but we have to have a cadence to the way that we operate if we expect to be successful. And um, you know, what you focus on expands. So when you focus on productivity, when you focus on, you know, clients that are in your lead tracker and then moving them a little bit forward every single time you speak with them, it's amazing. It's amazing to see what you can accomplish in 30 days or in 12 weeks. Um, especially if you focus on it like that and you get granular with your goals. What have been some of the biggest pivotal, most pivotal moments of growth for you as an entrepreneur and as what I would call, I I would say with any real estate venture, any real estate agent or being in real estate in general, whether you're with a company or totally on your own, it is like running a small business, right? What have been some of the biggest, most pivotal moments of growth for you as an entrepreneur slash business owner? That's a great question. So one of the biggest moments in my business have comes have come in times of like defeat and in, in really difficult situations where, you know, I, I wasn't able to achieve my goal. And for us achievers, it's addicting to achieve our goals. Like we're chasing after goals that usually give us a feeling of achievement that is fleeting, right? Once we mm-hmm. achieve it, we're like, yo, what's the next thing? But it is achievement junkies, achievement junkies, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, not achieving the goal is so much more impactful, uh, at least for me. Yeah. Um, perfect example was I was training for a triathlon a couple of years ago and, you know, running, biking, swimming every day, sometimes twice a day, getting up 5 wow. a.m. in the pool by 6 a.m., you know, running 5K, 10K in the morning, like before work. Wow. And I mean, it was a phenomenal environment to like prime yourself mm-hmm. for whatever adversity that you'd face in the day yeah and you know I, I really want to get back to that but I was training for this race 
and I had this was 2020, so like pandemic, yeah, um, you know, crazy real estate market, interest rates dropped, super competitive, everything became a little bit harder, and you know, I was still pretty consistent with my training. I had a friend of mine eventually take that on and run an Ironman. Wow. One of my good friends who works for uh, Lockheed, and um, he he went on and did the king of triathlons, right? But yeah. During that year. Um, I had, I had overcome a lot of adversity, which was cool, and that builds confidence in itself. Like, I was in the best shape of my life. But um, on Thanksgiving Day weekend, my dad and I, we had went mountain biking. And I've been mountain biking my whole life. And it's not like we were in the mountains or anything. We were in Virginia Key. And I ended up getting hurt hitting a jump that I had already hit, like, three or four times that week. And um, yeah. I guess I was a little overconfident. And that has definitely shown up in my business, too, when I'm in a good rhythm or you know, feel like I'm kind of on the roll without having a coach there or someone to tell you, hey, man, like stick to the basics, lead generate every day, pump the brakes, like focus on your sphere, whatever it is that you need to do to stay consistent. Um, to ground you, bring you back to, to earth a little you. bit. Yeah. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. I had got injured on, in a mountain biking accident. I had displaced my collarbone. Oh, ouch. Messed up my race. I like, couldn't compete. Yeah. And for a few months there, like lost a part of my identity. You know, I was in the best shape of my life and I could no longer compete. I could no longer go to the gym. I couldn't even really like drive a car effectively. Yeah. And uh, that, that really messed with me mentally and it affected my business, of course. And uh, overcoming that was the biggest test of my character that I've, that I've faced so far in my business. Um, yeah, I went through what I would describe as just kind of a smaller version of that myself. I've, I was a, actually a personal trainer before I got into what I do now. So huge, similar, huge part of my identity was attached to fitness, working out all the time and being in the shape I was in. And then I was skiing and I dislocated my shoulder mm. really bad. So was able to pop it back in, but for like maybe six weeks, I wasn't really able to lift it at all. Like do anything around it aside from like a little bit of like physical therapy stuff. And it was a really tough thing. Like you do just kind of lose a little part of your identity. What was, what was it that kind of changed for you as like, how did you grow through that? And how did you come out on the other side of that? Having a good support system. I mean, you know, excuse me, uh, having a good support system for sure. At the time I had lived with a good friend of mine and a couple of roommates who, you know, they were there for me. And whenever I came home or whenever they came home, cause I was usually home all day, uh, recovering, um, mm -hmm. you know, just being able to talk through our days and how, how I felt in the moment, how, you know, they were overcoming certain things in their, in their day. So, um, having a good support system and not going through it alone. I think if you yeah. try to go through something like that alone, it just makes it harder and all the noise that you experience in your head just gets louder. Mm -hmm. So having a good support team and you, you know, get a different perspective that way too, yeah. than just the one you're giving yourself. hundred percent. So yeah, having a good support system, I would say was most effective. Very cool. Any other moments of like big growth that you can think of that have been kind of influential for you? I mean, a ton, man. I'm, you know, a lot of wins, a lot of losses, but, um, you know, there's always lessons in, in the losses, right? Um, I can say I, I've learned a ton, you know, working with, so working with investors is always fun because you see people who are well capitalized and you learn how they're deploying their capital and mm -hmm. on what type of assets they're deploying their capital on, what quality of assets they're deploying their capital on. Right now I'm working with an investor on a 10 unit development project. Wow. It's like a $2 million uh, contract, I guess you can say. And 
the 10 units, we can build each house for about $210,000 each. Okay. And day one, the portfolio will be worth like 300000 So we're building a $300,000 house for 210000 It's 90 right there we're immediately. 10 of them, and we're doing what's called build to rent. Okay. So he's going to keep them for four or five years, let them appreciate a certain amount, and then exit the property by either selling it or taking a loan against it to you know buy something else. But he's well capitalized enough where he probably won't need to finance anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say working with investors has definitely expanded my mind and showed me what's possible uh, just by having Start a different seat. At, bigger. Just by having a different seat at the table. Yeah, you mentioned that you've been trying to move more towards that. You're for reference, you're in the luxury market right now. I, I don't know if we had discussed that yet on, on air, but you're like you're in the luxury market right now. I wouldn't say I'm in the luxury market right now. I'm definitely working with uh, you know very affluent buyers, but a lot of my clientele is focused on investment properties. Um, so you know most of my past clients are friends from college and families who needed a house, right? Mm-hmm. Like. That's my portfolio of sales, you could say. Yeah. But, you know, it comes with highly, it's a highly emotional transaction that is difficult to navigate with someone that's not already like a close friend of yours, right? Um, sure. You know, I've, I've sold over 70 homes and over 20 million in sales volume, but it's a lot more fun when the process is streamlined, when the buyer kind of has experience and knows what they're getting themselves into, and investors really provide that. Um, you know, majesty of calmness, I guess you could say. Like they, they kind I of, like that term. Even majesty if even if calm. things go south, like they're cool with it. They know it's part of the game. Yeah. And they're really just they're more about like the bottom line about is this a good investment than getting emotions tied into it. And I, I would imagine emotions get heavily tied in, especially when it's someone's primary residence that you're talking about. If it's not someone's primary residence and it's kind of this new venture for them, it probably removes most of the emotions. Exactly. So think about, you know, representing your average buyer, you know, three to $600,000 price range and then multiplying that by 10, right? Mm-hmm. Like emotions are going to come with it. So Yeah. And a lot of stress by extension. Inevitably. Yeah. So moving into more of the investment side, you mentioned it's, it kind of expands your mind, allows you to think a little bit bigger. What are some ways that you've seen that play out for you? What are some, some kind of changes that you've had in the way that you think about real estate? So before we, we hopped on air, we talked about the different ways that you can make money in real estate. And I had been attending this mastermind uh, since December of last year. Um, at this place called National Real Estate. This guy's a developer. He builds most of his homes in Ocala. He builds one model, and he's a developer. It's a, it's a, it's a business model that's been rin- rinsed and repeated you know, a thousand different ways. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money in development. Um, and I didn't really know the different ways you could make money in real estate other than selling real estate for a long time. Yeah. And most real estate agents fall into this category. They're guilty of the same thing. I guess it's hard to know until you start really diving into the industry and learning about it from different people that have been through it before, right? Well, frankly, brokerages don't want you to know how to wholesale real estate, how to build houses, how to pretty much do anything other than sell houses. Yeah, right? Brokerages will not give you that education at the office. And that's why so many people live in this like vacuum of, you know, sell more homes, sell more homes, sell more homes. But it's, you know, you can't, you can't sell your way to wealth. Yeah, you really can't. Um, and there's kind of a cap to it. In it, in trying to achieve that level of income and that level of wealth, you look for different avenues to accomplish that, right? Mm-hmm. 
as a real estate agent, you can start a brokerage and build a team and go that route. It's not really something I'm super passionate about. A lot of people have done it and have become super successful by doing it. Um, but, you know, it's not really the path that speaks to me personally. Um, Quick tangent here, because this is something I had thought about and forgot to ask you earlier, but I do want to get back to like the different ways to make money in real estate and kind of walk through those. But what drives you, do you think? What drives me? Yeah, so I mentioned I, I don't come from, you know, I come from humble beginnings and I always knew I wanted a lot more for my family and, you know, to give back. I have a little sister who, you know, she's uh, she's 19 and she's always seen me like hustle and, and just be the entrepreneur that I am today. So, you know, other than just being an example and a leader in my family and, and being able to put my family tree on my back, um, I just, you know, want to be remembered for like never settling for less and always being able to give it all that you have. Um, but I guess uh, that's, that's kind of a loaded question, but yeah, it's a, it's a deep question. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's on kind of a visceral level, right? <laughs> but you had talked about having a very strong work ethic and being kind of a hustler before it. No, I, I think that's a great answer. And it, um, it makes me kind of realize what you have really that you're talking about. There is a growth mindset. I would say I was just talking with a friend about this yesterday about what having a growth mindset means. I, I'm curious what that means to you personally, having a growth mindset. I remember I was uh, helping helping one of my friends like design a pool on his luxury house. And there's a lot of like rules and regulations on what you can and can't do when, when building a pool. And he's like, I don't see walls and obstacles. I see opportunity. Like mm-hmm. you can build a pool up here, like a slide, you know. Yeah. And um, <laughs> just looking at things from a perspective where you can. It's not... It's not like, you know, if, some, if, if you're tested, life is 10% about what happens and 90% about how you respond. So if something comes at you and you didn't expect it, like you can either pity yourself and act like a victim or you can, you know, puff up your chest and just say, hey, man, like this happened for me. I'm going to find a way to turn this into my superpower to overcome it. Yeah. Not on top. Love that. So getting back to... The ways to to uh, make money in real estate. You were talking about development there for a bit. There's a few other ones we talked about off air, though. I'd like to talk about wholesaling a little bit. So, could you describe like how you view wholesaling? Yeah. So, I mean, as a real estate entrepreneur, uh, two of the easiest ways and most simple ways you can build capital is by either representing clients in the traditional market or wholesaling real estate. Now, wholesaling real estate, you don't need your license for. It's pretty cool. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, you don't need your license for. It's more of an investment uh, activity, mm-hmm. right? Because let's say you're a fix and flip investor and you come across wholesale deals all the time. A wholesaler is trying to assign a deal to you. Um, you can actually get under contract with that wholesale deal. And if you don't like it, assign it to someone else. Yeah. Right? So if I back up a little bit, wholesaling is the art of finding ugly houses and getting on the phone with the seller or doing it in person, getting that property under contract for a price that allows another fix and flip investor who's actually going to renovate the property and exit the property via a sale or refinance for a price that allows them to do that. So Mm -hmm. for example, if the after repair value, the ARV for a property is $300,000, you would need to acquire it at a price that gives the fix and flip investor enough of a spread 
to renovate the property and exit successfully. And so if they're looking for like a $50,000 spread and you're looking to make 30 grand, you need to be purchasing it at 220. Right. And a lot of wholesalers are trying to get rich off one deal, Mm -hmm. and that's not the way to run a wholesale business, right? It's a volume thing probably, right? If a fix and flip investor sees at the closing table that you made a larger assignment fee than he's going to make on the flip, it's very unlikely that he'll do business with you in the future. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't run your business like that, um, but, you know, this is real estate is very relationship oriented. And again, how you carry yourself, how you do anything is how you do everything. And um, you just want to be transparent as a wholesaler, as a fixed and flip investor, as a real estate agent with whoever you're working with, what your intentions are, and you know, what, you, what you're looking to accomplish. So I think wholesalers do a very good thing for the marketplace, um, especially in a downward trending market. You know, they're the ones finding good deals for fix and flip investors and fix and flip investors are providing inventory for the market that wasn't there before. Yeah. Right. If they didn't fix it up and make it look nice and renovated, that's not a house that you would have bought. Mm-hmm. That's not a house that you would have rented. Yeah. Right. But they're doing a good thing and it all starts with the wholesaler. So wholesalers can get a bad rap because they have to buy the property for as cheap as possible. And yeah. You can imagine how those conversations play out over the phone with the seller. Again, it's very intimate and it's highly emotional. But, um, but imagine those are probably some of the most emotional situations. Oh, yeah. I mean, they go after pre-foreclosures, uh, tax liens, distressed properties of any kind. You know, you can call the county or, or email them and ask for a water shutoff list. Anybody who's had wow. their water shut off in the last 30 days, they'll send you a spreadsheet of all those addresses. Really? Yeah, for free. Wow. Public information. And um, yeah, you can go after those motivated sellers and mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, you're in a bad situation. I can help you out. I can give you a cash offer. Yeah. And again, you don't need the actual cash to make him an offer on the property. As long that's as the it's, part that stuck out to me the most about this, as long as you can get it under contract for a price that another investor will purchase it you, from you for, for then mm-hmm. you can flip that paper, flip that contract and make a small assignment fee. And now you are kind of taking the risk of if you can't find that person, then you, you're you still bearing that responsibility. Oh, yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a lot of risk, but without having to have any capital. Exactly. And there's a lot of risk in being a real estate agent too, right? You're representing people in a contract where there are contingencies in place, uh, including you know their inspection period, something can go wrong with inspection, and no matter what, even if it's a brand new house, your inspection report is going to be like 20 pages long. Mm-hmm. Like That's just the name of the game. Um, and there's it's a fin- financing contingency in place where, you know, they the buyer has to get approved for the loan in order to close on the house. Um, in wholesale contracts, when you assign a contract to somebody else, you're not giving that investor any contingencies. Mm-hmm. They have to close on the property. Their escrow deposit is hard. Um, so it's a different game. It's definitely a little more fast paced, which I do enjoy. Um, but yeah, that's two of the many different ways you can make money in real estate. I was going to ask you talk about risk. Have you always been pretty comfortable with risk or has that been kind of a muscle you had to develop? I feel like the biggest risk is not taking one, right? Especially if you want to level up your life and just change, change your environment, change the life that you're going to give to your friends and your family. The biggest risk is staying where you are right now. Yeah. So I've, always been uh, prone to risk, (laughs) even uh, unnecessarily so at times. But no, I've become very comfortable with risk. And now I've been comfortable with taking less and less risk as I deploy more, you know, capital into my business, into 
marketing efforts into relationships, things like that. Yeah, I guess you kind of, in a typical career like this, you got to kind of take some risk up front to position yourself to a place where you can start to have the capital to be able to pursue those lower risk ventures. 100%. So we had covered development and wholesaling. Could you talk about redevelopment a little bit? Yeah, redevelopment, another name for redevelopment is fix and flip, Mm -hmm. right? So as a fix and flip investor, usually they're building capital, right? So um, I think about the evolution of the investor a lot, of the the real estate investor. The evolution of the real estate investor usually starts with uh, cash flowing a small multifamily property because maybe they have 20 or 30 or $50,000 and they want to buy themselves into some cash flow enough so to cover their living expenses, mm-hmm. right? Once you have your living expenses taken care of, you have your time back. Yeah. You can focus on the deals that you want to go after, not necessarily the ones that you have to go after, mm-hmm. right? You could probably quit your job if you have your living expenses paid for and you're not in real estate, Yeah. right? And that's a common strategy for the beginner real estate investor. Once you have $100,000, $200,000 and you want to double it, you want to triple it, the quickest way to do that is with fix and flips, right? Unless you have a wholesale operation or a different business venture in mind where you can multiply your cash by putting cash in and getting cash out, fix and flip is like the most common way to do that. So usually fix and flip investors, they understand how to manage contractors, they can get private money, uh, hard money loans is is what they're called, or Mm -hmm. private lending on real estate assets and they look for ugly houses. They look for distressed properties where they can come in, buy it for a discount, usually uh, 67% of the after repair value minus repairs. That's like a common formula that most fix and flip. Gotcha, okay. Mm -hmm. Or 70% minus repairs. In a downward trending market, most people are becoming more conservative, so it's like 67 to 65% minus repairs. Okay. And then they'll uh, buy the property in cash using that hard money loan, mm-hmm. right? So there's no financing contingencies. They'll buy the, the property in cash and then renovate the property also using the bank's money, sometimes their money, but um, usually they'll use the private lender's money. And if you've kind of gotten to that point, like you were talking about that whole evolution, if you've gotten to the point and you have decided to quit your job by that point, you can avoid some of those repair and renovation costs by just putting in some sweat equity at that point. Yeah, but I mean, also you know how to manage the contractors and and handle that. I haven't personally fixed and flipped any properties myself, but I have worked with investors who, who do that full-time, who do it part-time. And it's hard to scale mm-hmm. if you're in the job. If right. you're constantly there like trying to save money on you know, installing some cabinets or something like that. It's easier to scale if you delegate that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's your first flip, and you want to save some money on the demo, you could definitely like save $5,000 on demoing the property yourself. But um, that's that's typically up to the investor. Yeah. After their first deal, you know, they have the cash flow they need to cover their living expenses. And at this point, you know, they're usually trying to double whatever savings they have. So if you have 50,000 and you want to make it 200,000, then the easiest way to do that is to do fix and flip. If you can make consistently 12 to 15%, 20% sometimes, on a fix and flip deal. That's usually what fix and flip investors go for. Um, you know, you, you'll want to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you want to do as many fix and flips as you can. So if you can make, uh, you know, $12,000 on your $50,000 investment, that's that's only 6%. So you make 24,000, that's 12%, right? Mm-hmm. 
So if you can make 12%, $24,000 on your $50,000 investment, you know, if you do five Pretty of those, good. you can get to your $125,000 goal. Yeah. And then once, usually once investors meet their, you know, savings goal, whether it's, you know, 200,000, 500,000, now they're capitalized enough to go deploy that into cash flowing assets. A lot of, uh, a lot of people like stocks and dividend paying stocks. And those are great. You know, I'm a big believer in the American economy. Uh, but there are some people who like their money in real assets mm-hmm. and multifamily investing is a really popular way to do that. So you can buy FHA up to four units, but, um, if you have 25% down, you can, you know, buy as pretty much as big as you want. Um, don't quote me on that because a lender will probably say that's not true. But, you know, if you put 25% down, you can buy, you know, an eight unit complex that pays you $10,000 a month. Yeah. Right. And it's appreciating over time. You get tax depreciation, which means you can like the amount of income that you make, you can depreciate against that. So you're paying less in taxes. So there's tax benefits Mm -hmm. to owning real estate. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a predictable way to, to, to get cash flow. And then if you're well capitalized and you have a million dollars in the bank and you want to, you know, spend your money on high quality assets, usually I see investors going after commercial real estate or development, new development. Mm-hmm. Um, build to rent was something that kind of took off in 2016. A lot of private equity funds started building communities specifically to rent them out and yeah. get, you know, 8 to 10% on their on their deployed capital. Um, and Especially with the explosion of short-term rentals. The short-term rentals and just the supply issue that we're having in Florida. Population mm-hmm. is gonna keep growing and you know they're only, they can only build so fast. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, it's a very popular model today and I'm actually working on my first one right now. So hopefully nice. I get that done by the end of the year. Very cool. So h- how did you get into that initially? So, I mean, I was working with this investor. I'm working with this investor who, you know, very well capitalized. You know, this guy's loaded mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't need any financing. He told me one time, he's like, Aaron, like, I'm very liquid. I don't need any financing. Find me the best deal that you can. Mm-hmm. And by attending that mastermind consistently that I was telling you about, uh, showing up week over week, I met these developers who build houses and typically they build houses to sell, right? You could build a house with a construction of perm loan. Uh, putting like fifty to sixty thousand dollars down, you finance the construction, and your all-in costs would be like two hundred and ten thousand dollars. You financed most of it. You have fifty, sixty k in the house, and then you exit the property for three hundred, three hundred fifteen thousand dollars. That's the easiest sixty thousand dollars you'll ever make in your life, yeah. right? The biggest obstacle with development is the time associated with it. But if you're comfortable locking up your fifty, sixty thousand dollars, you can make you know ninety percent on your money. Yeah. 100% on your money. That's amazing. It is, yeah. If you're it's comfortable. almost doubling. Exactly. So well-capitalized investors who aren't worried about sacrificing all the future income that the property could produce mm-hmm. would rather keep the property, rent it out, get the tax depreciation, get all the benefits that come with owning the real estate long-term, and then sell the property after it appreciates a certain amount in like five years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's exciting. What are what are the biggest things that you are looking forward to as being part of that deal? So being part of that deal, one, the relationship with the investor. It would be the first deal that I do with this investor. And, you know, I'm looking for a long-term relationship with this person. 
he sees how persistent I've been. And at first, like, he wasn't warming up to me. I've been working with this guy for a year. Mm. And, you know, we haven't done any business yet. Yeah. So that's just, you know, just keep that in mind. Like, relationships take a long time to nurture, and especially people with money. Like, everyone wants what they have. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you're genuine and, again, transparent with your intentions is super important. But uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, establishing our relationship the right way. And um, he just bought a 10-unit property in South Florida for the same price for $2.1 million. And, you know, it's a 10-unit property that was built in the 80s in a very competitive rental market, um, which is good. So it's, it's, it's good to understand what he's buying. And now I understand why he's building 10 units in Ocala. Yeah. Right? Because it's a high-quality asset, brand new. You know, you won't, won't have to worry about any maintenance or anything like that. And it's a strong rental market as well. It's a growing rental market. There will always be a market for affordable housing, mm-hmm. and that's what we're building in Ocala. So yeah. I'm looking forward to establishing the relationship with him the most because I know once we have the proof of concept there, you know, the floodgates will open. And yeah, he'll you be can ready keep to, doing deals. Exactly. That's awesome. It's exciting. And I'll get paid on the way in. And then in five years, I'll be able to sell the properties on the way out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of touch points there to make money. 100%. Well, cool. Another thing I wanted to get back to is we were talking a little bit earlier, kind of in the vein of that, um, that evolution of the real estate investor conversation about working. I had mentioned the idea of kind of doing some of the renovations yourself. And you said, you made a great point that it's not super scalable, right? We're, so we're talking a little bit about, I guess, what you would call working in what you're doing versus working on it. I think that's a common thread in any kind of business ownership. It's something I'm constantly reminding myself as a partner of my business is I try to work on the business and moving the business forward as much as possible versus getting caught up in a lot of the operations. What have been some things that you've observed from working with a lot of these people that have kind of been around the block with that a little bit more as far as what works well for that? How how do they delegate successfully? The easiest example I can give you is property management, right? Like you can collect the rent yourself mm-hmm. or you can hire someone for 8 to 10% a month and not have to deal with collecting rents, right? That gives you your time back and your time is your most valuable resource in any business, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, property management is a great example. And then, you know, hiring contractors, right? Like you could probably do a lot of the work yourself. And in some cases you'll save money, right? But if you saved $3,000 to do the demo yourself on a house where you could have gotten a contractor in and you got your time back, you can go spend that time on finding other deals that could have made you a lot more than $3,000. Yeah. So um, delegating, it's hard at first because you got to trust someone else to do the job just as good as you want them to. Mm-hmm. But typically, if you can get somebody to do it 70% as good as you, um, it should work out okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say that is the biggest challenge. I've tried to delegate more. A good example, aside from just the business I'm in, is the podcast. I've tried to delegate more and more of that. And it's it's a challenging thing, right? We had talked about when we first talked about delegating some video editing and stuff like that. You've got to go through this process of having it done the wrong way sometimes before you get to the right way. And there's, it's tough to really come to grips with that because you know that you could be doing it the right way. What have been some personal uh, experiences that you've had in delegation? In delegating, so 
having a showing assistant is uh, something that I constantly think about because it would save me a lot of time, but then I wouldn't get as much face time with my clients, right, at the property. And that's kind of my jam, right? Like they want me there advising them on how to negotiate with the seller or exit the property the right way, uh, depending on the deal. So in some cases, a showing agent is appropriate. And um, I'm, I'm looking to hire one soon. So if anybody's listening and wants some experience in real estate, yeah. <laughs> I can definitely uh, help Hit them up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's also an intimate experience that I highly value. So it's kind of hard to, you know, sacrifice that time with my client when I know that's really valuable time that I could be advising them. Because let's say if I don't show them the property, then that's that much more time I have to advise them, which is fine. You know, that's something that I have to measure when I'm working on the business. Um, but I'd be much more efficient if I could advise them at the showings and make an offer on the property right there as soon as we leave. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's an argument for both sides and I'm sure I'll have issues scaling if I try to show all my clients every property. Sure. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's a practical way to implement something like that in a, in a real estate business uh, to find leverage. I guess it just comes down to finding the right person, being able to relay the values that you have as the person doing the showings and make sure that that can be replicated. That's exactly what it is. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I haven't looked for that person. So if yeah. I do find someone who's hungry and genuine and just looking to learn while making some some good good income at it, then um, yeah, I'm sure I'd be open to it. Yeah. Now switching gears a little bit, the way I found you actually was start seeing a lot of your reels on Instagram. You do a lot of content creation around real estate yourself. How did you decide to start doing that? So it came naturally at first. I mean, everyone knows sharing what you do on social media is the easiest way to build your brand. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people spending millions of dollars on Super Bowl commercials and on ads that you see on your phone. So, you know, why wouldn't you be taking advantage of an opportunity like that? And it, again, it started with just being like the youngest person in my ecosystem, showing houses and selling houses, posting pictures of us jumping in a pool on closing day and stuff like that. Like mm -hmm. I kind of found my niche and it really took off. You know, people saw that I was doing a good job and representing my clients well. Um, but my business started very sales oriented. And then I saw that I had to lean in on the marketing. It's not something that pays an ROI immediately, but it compounds. Mm -hmm. And when you see the views you're getting online and the traction that you're getting, the trust that you're building in the community, it's really easy to lean into that. Um, which is again, you know, a, a big reason why I'm here. So yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Is it's not a direct ROI, but it does compound over time. Another great example is me. That's the reason I do the podcast, right? It's not the main thing I do. I have another business that I'm involved in that takes a majority of my time. But I do this. I mean, it, this is a great example right now. I'm interested personally in real estate. I'm learning a ton right now from you. That. The podcast is not making me direct revenue out of this, but here I am learning things that could allow me to expand myself and allow my audience to expand what they're doing. And you just it's got into an Airbnb yourself, right? I did, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of got into that because I had started doing the podcast, talking to people, learning things, and it just kind of builds from there. You build your knowledge. I think it's a great way to build your knowledge and just doing content yourself. You kind of you put yourself on the hook to be putting out good knowledge and do it and conducting yourself in a certain way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it definitely takes, uh, some, I mean, any, you gotta be consistent at anything to expect to be good at it. It mm -hmm. would be unreasonable to think that you would be good at it from the very beginning. So, um, yeah, I've been, been working on getting in front of the camera more often and just learning 
how I flow naturally. So it's different being in front of the camera by yourself with tips and tricks videos mm -hmm. versus like having a real conversation with someone yeah. and, you know, having an editor figure it out when you send them the raw footage. So I prefer this over being in front of the camera by myself, but maybe it's because I haven't done that enough. So I guess it we'll feels see. a little more natural too. I find like people are able to, I mean, I've had a lot of people on that have never even done a podcast before, but once you kind of get into the swing of it, especially with these headphones, they kind of just, <laughs> you hear like the whole conversation happening, you kind of lock in and almost forget about it. So it, it's a very natural kind of format. And I've had good success with people that have never even done it before, just kind of feeling like, oh, it just feels like we're having a conversation here. Exactly, yep. Yeah. What have been some of your biggest successes around content creation? Biggest successes And biggest challenges. So biggest challenge is just getting in front of the camera, man. I think we get in our own way so many, so many especially entrepreneurs, we get imposter syndrome. We have self-doubt. Mm -hmm. We don't think we're good enough. Don't think we're smart enough. We're gonna get on camera and get exposed. But, you know, at the end of the day, like people want to hear you tell your story, um, you know, and other people might have their own story. And it's easy to compare your story to theirs because social media like propagates that. But there's nobody else who's doing it like Brody Vincent. Right. There's nobody mm -hmm. else who's doing it like me. And people will now they can subscribe to you on Instagram and like mm -hmm. you can monetize your storytelling if you have a big enough audience. And. You don't even need to have, you know, 50,000 followers or 100,000 followers to make that big of an impact if you're a good storyteller. So I think uh, the biggest challenge for me just has been getting in front of the camera consistently. But now, uh, thankfully, to Tiffany and the rest of the team at Align, uh, they have a whole studio set up where I can just go in and shoot content pretty much whenever I super want. Super convenient. So that's super convenient. They take a, a lot of the heavy lifting uh, off my plate, and you know I'm really grateful for that. So now it's just a matter of getting in the studio and making time for it. Yeah. I think with doing that, right, you're building a brand. How would you describe the brand that you're trying to build as Aaron Abadie? That's a great question. So my brand, just uh, as an entrepreneur, I think when people think of me, they think of uh, – you know, in the most like non-arrogant way, like success, right? Like achievement. Um, I'm very competitive and I think people feel that when they meet me um, and just living like a healthy lifestyle that, that uh, you know, is, is infectious for other people. Hopefully other people see that, but definitely um, real estate is what's the driving force behind the brand. But, um, you know, it's not always the right investment for everyone. Mm -hmm. in, in residential real estate, there's not like you only buy your residential, your primary residence one time, and then you're out for a few years. Yeah. So you can't constantly market to those clients because it would like just be inappropriate. Yeah. Um, so as an entrepreneur, I do want to find other ways to provide value to those people outside of real estate. And if people see me as an entrepreneur, not just like a real estate agent, they can understand that like, I'm always going to take what the market has to offer and show it to you in the most like capitalistic way for you to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, something that has kind of presented itself in some of my networking and masterminding is e-commerce. Um, right now we're offering uh, Amazon stores where we do all the heavy lifting, all the product research. We have physical warehouses where, you know, we house the inventory. If you want to open up a store, literally just takes you know, a certain deployment of capital, anywhere from like 10,000 to 40,000. And the splits that you receive are based on like your initial investment. But you're talking about like Amazon FBA kind FBA. of? FBA. Yeah. yeah. Amazon FBA. My sister's getting into that right now. So right now we're seeing anywhere from like 
20 to 30 percent ROI on your initial investment. Wow. And uh, typically people like to roll that investment back into the store to buy sure. more inventory. Um, if yeah. You, if you make that investment, you can then turn it around and invest like 1.34 times what you invested before and grow it faster. Absolutely. So that's been something that I've been looking more into and offering my clients now that, you know, everyone's always looking for a way to monetize their time and their, their, you know, make a return on their money. Some people like to invest their time and figure it out on their own, but other people want to invest their money because they don't want to give away their time. Mm -hmm. This is a really good way. Depends to, what position someone's in at the given time. Exactly. So e-commerce doing a, you know, having an Amazon store and having it fulfilled by us is a really good way to leverage your income so you can keep your time and spend it, you know, the, the best way that serves you. So you're doing this yourself right now, Amazon? FC? So, yeah, I mean, my friends have the warehouse spaces and I'm just kind of selling their services as a white label. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been working really well for their clients and it's something that I want to get into because everyone's looking for a way to make a return on their investment. And real estate is great, but it's not for everyone all the time, Yeah. right? And I'm not going to like sugarcoat it and be like, oh, you should always buy a house because it's the yeah. best thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to invest and grow your wealth. Um, but sometimes people are looking for a different investment. And if you don't have something else to offer them, they're going to go somewhere else. Very true. So I guess it sounds like the brand you're trying to build is like a play, an entrepreneur and someone that people can come to to learn about different ways to deploy capital profitably. And their time, right? And their like time. If you want to learn how to wholesale real estate, I'll show you. If you want to learn yeah. how to sell real estate, I'll show you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it all depends on what your goals are. And at the very, at the end of the day, like ultimately I want, I just want to help people achieve their goals. And if that's, if, if I can do that by sharing my knowledge, that's great. Um, I think that's the easiest way to make an impact in someone's life. Uh, just because I'm in, I'm in real estate doesn't mean that it has to be in real estate, but typically that's what, you know, people come to me for. So. Do you like being involved in multiple different things? Do you kind of... Does that excite you and kind of like keep you interested a little bit <laughs> Absolutely. more? Absolutely. I think yeah. it's to my own detriment sometimes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I found the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I love building things, but I don't always finish them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's where having a, a partner, having someone else implement some of the ideas that you have is so valuable because, you know, like I said, I love building things and taking them off the ground. But if it doesn't give me the, fruit that I expected from the beginning, sometimes it'll just dissipate and I'll like go on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and it's cool that I'm in real estate because no two transactions are the same. No two experiences are the same. So that allure is always there. Yeah. That excitement is always there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen times in my business where I've diversified my interests a little too early and it's, um, you know, hurt my business. So how do you check yourself when that starts to happen? So not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I go back to my coach. <laughs> yeah. I tell him kind of where I'm spending my time and he immediately kind of like grounds me and says, Hey, you know, the lowest hanging fruit you have is X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, if you diversify too early, you're offered two different things at the same time. It's kind of like wearing two different shoes, you know, yeah. you kind of trip over yourself. So very true. Uh, yeah. So just finding that accountability one way or another, finding that accountability, you mentioned having a partner too. Think you could kind of find that through like a coach or through a partner, having a partner in any venture. It's someone that you have to report to and have to kind of be accountable to. And with the day. coach, it's cool because we started our coaching journey by 
the question that you had asked me earlier, like, what's your biggest why? What drives you? And, you know, ultimately, I want to become a full time real estate investor. Mm-hmm. Right? I want to just deploy capital, not my time. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, spend my time on the things that grow my family, make an impact in my community. I want to give back. Mm-hmm. But our very first coaching call, he asked me, what is it that you want to accomplish out of, out of life? Like when you're 90 years old, what are some things that you want to say you're really happy that you accomplished? And that's the easiest way to identify like what you want to accomplish in life and how you want to get there. What do you want to tell your grandchildren? What are some cool stories that you want to have that your, your grandchildren will be inspired by? And um, that's kind of where we start. And then we reverse engineer the process. And it's easy to get distracted along the way with like shiny object syndrome mm-hmm. because especially in this market that we've just exited and even now there's opportunity everywhere. Yeah. Right? Like I've sold solar systems, I've done Airbnb arbitrage, I've invested in other businesses, I've sold real estate, I've wholesaled real estate. Like there's a lot going on and as an entrepreneur, the biggest temptation is novelty. Yeah. It's feeling like you can just do something else and make money doing it because you're so talented and you're so good. But when you say yes to something, you're saying no to everything else. Mm -hmm. So just because you're making money in a different avenue, if you're spending your time making that money, it's just time away from your other business. Yeah. So um, I've had to pull myself back multiple different times. Um, Usually when business is good, Mm -hmm. right? That's when it's easy to not make the calls that you need to make, et cetera. But, um, but now, you know, I'm really leaning into marketing and building the brand because when you, uh, you know, the ROI on your brand is almost infinite, right? When, it is. When you it's, have, there's longevity in it. It's something that you, it can't be taken away from you either. Exactly. So now that's where I've been spending the majority of my uh, extra time. Yeah. Building the brand. One thing that was in there that I think was a really important note is the more you put yourself out there as an entrepreneur, this is something I'm really dealing with right now is because I involve myself in so many things, sometimes too many things, sometimes at my detriment, (laughs) is just getting better. The more you put yourself out there, the more you have to get good at saying no to things, saying no to opportunities, saying no to things that sound really great and probably are really great, but just could distract you too much. How do you identify, like what are some signs that show you that you need to say no to something? Like in maybe like your personal life, your the the amount that you feel yeah, overloaded so, so this is a, an interesting topic because again real re, residential real estate is very relationship oriented mm-hmm. so it's really easy to say yeah i'll go to edc with you or yeah mm-hmm. i'll go to the bar with you yeah we'll go out to dinner etc but at the end of the month when you're looking at your pnl you're like damn i spent a lot of money and you know time doing things that i probably could have been more conservative on Um, not saying that those things aren't important. You should definitely be reinvesting back in your business, but sometimes opportunities are dressed up like opportunities when they're really, you know, uh, distractions, not the best, not the best use of your resources. So, um, when any, anytime there's like drinking involved and it's during the week, I'm pretty conservative about that. I I wasn't always that way. Well, I really appreciate this then. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's Friday and it's like EDC weekend, I guess, but, uh, you know, interest rates went, went down yesterday that like hovering in the sixes right now. So, um, while everyone's out partying this weekend, I've engaged all my clients and said, Hey, like if you're in the market, this is a really good time to go find a good deal. Mm -hmm. Um, I have some clients, I have two clients right now that are looking for multifamily under 500,000. So, um, I, I almost every day look at what the market has to offer when it comes to like anything between two and 10 units. 
Mm -hmm. And usually under 500,000, you can find something two to four units, two to five units uh, for a pretty good price in a you know strong rental market. So uh, hopefully we're going to have a strong weekend this weekend. <laughs> what are some of the strongest rental markets in Central Florida that you've seen? Lake Nona, for sure. I mean, people just want to live there because the, the school districts are almost second to none. And it's a very uh, health-oriented ecosystem. Uh, Lake Nonians are like diehard fans. Mm -hmm. uh, so that... Lake Nona, Winter Garden, everything is pretty much brand new out there. Yeah. Um, and depending on where you live in Winter Garden, you can see Disney's fireworks from your backyard. Um, so, you know, that that brings a big uh, eclectic crowd, you know, yeah. from New York, Chicago, California, like everyone's flocking to these two kind of primary rental markets, downtown Orlando. UCF, UCF, it's like its own little economy. It right? really is. Yeah, <laughs> that was what really sold me on going to UCF because I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. So I wasn't from here, but I came and toured UCF and I was like, oh, it's like its own little city. Yeah, this is crazy. It is. So, I mean, if you if you buy any single family home over there and you can cash flow it, you can almost like guarantee that it's going to be occupied because most of the students have their parents co-signing like it's just yep. a really great experience for for real estate investors very cool good market to be in for oh, sure yeah, for sure definitely another thing you had mentioned is airbnb arbitrage i wanted to cover that a little bit we had talked about that off air but how do you describe that because i had not heard that term used before you said it really okay yeah so Airbnb arbitrage is basically where you rent the property out from a homeowner for a set price with the expectation that you're going to run your short-term rental business under that lease. So if I'm renting a property from you for $1,500 a month, I can run my short-term rental business there, furnish the property, and make you know, three, four, five thousand dollars a month, whatever the property is expected to yield. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, I have a property under Airbnb arbitrage in downtown Orlando. Uh, we pay two thousand dollars a month for the monthly rent, mm -hmm. and typically the property brings in anywhere from thirty-five hundred to forty-five hundred dollars a month. Uh, this month is actually a, a more profitable month because of EDC weekend. We had someone pay like two thousand dollars a month for five nights, something like that. Yeah, um, pretty awesome. But, it's a huge note there that we hadn't even mentioned yet that kind of getting the, the between the lines here. It's a it's an interesting thing if you're maybe newer to it because you avoid a little bit of the risk that way, right? You're just getting yourself into a lease and not an entire mortgage. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't have to uh, qualify for a loan. Mm -hmm. Typically, you could furnish the property with like a credit card or something like that. Yeah and start cash flowing within a few months. Yeah. And you mentioned you, you're doing it yourself right now. And I think you had said that after just a couple months, you're cash flowing pretty strongly. So proof of concept right there, it does work. It absolutely works. Yeah. The, the hardest part or the most important part, I should say, is making sure that it's more of an experience rather than just like, you know, an alternative mm -hmm. to finding a hotel. You want to make sure that you, you know, make the the clients feel those warm and fuzzies. It's not like a long-term rental where it's like, you know, it, it kind of takes care of itself. You want to make sure that uh, you provide an experience and, you know, you're, you're getting reviewed on every single stay. So. so you had mentioned that it's really important to make sure that you're kind of standing out with your property that you want to rent out. What are some kind of tips that you have that you've found have been successful for differentiating those properties? Airbnb provides a magnificent platform that provides the demand. 
for mm-hmm. short-term rentals. So you don't have to worry about whether the property is going to be rented or not. You just want to make sure that the people who do stay with you leave a five-star review because that's how the algorithm works. Mm-hmm. So some tips for making it more of an experience rather than just like an alternative to staying at a hotel is do something special for the guests when they check in. Don't give them like a big instruction manual, like take out the trash, wash the dishes, yeah. like that. Definitely don't do that. Yeah. Um, but like sometimes we leave a bottle of wine for people who are staying for a certain period of time. Um, sometimes we have, you know, uh, we have we have a little book actually where people can write about their experience. I've like, seen those before. Yeah, those are great. So we have something like that. And then um, sometimes we'll just like Amazon them something cool to the property. So it's really about the experience. We're thinking about like uh, getting a jacuzzi or a, a pool or something like that in the backyard because right now it's just um, kind of like an open space. And although people do appreciate it and we have nothing but five-star reviews, we want to make sure that we keep that standard of you know excellence and, and, a, and a good experience um, while people are there at the property. So. Very cool. So one thing I kind of like to, in these interviews, catch up to what you're doing now. Obviously we talked about your background, what you're doing now. I'm also curious though, obviously this is something it sounds like you're gonna be in for a while. It's like your goal to continue being a better and better real estate investor, it sounds like. What do you see as the next five years for you and what are some things you hope to accomplish over the next five years? So over the next five years, I wanna start and create a rental portfolio that pays me at least $10,000 a month. Um, I think that's actually setting the bar really low. Um, but you know, over the next five years, that's a really long time uh, to achieve whatever goals that you want in real estate. Um, I, I have So first things first, I'm buying my first multifamily property probably in the next six to eight months. Nice. The goal is to buy like a triplex or a fourplex. Uh, somewhere in Central Florida. I'm not really too picky on the location as long as it's a good rental market and uh, I can get it for a good price, then I'm super down to buy it. So um, I expect to find something off market. You don't always have to find something on the MLS. You can always find something off market. And those Would that just be through kind of the existing relationships that you have? Yeah, so you can connect with wholesalers and they'll put you on like their email blast or whatever. Most of those properties don't end up on the MLS. I, I saw a fun fact that it was actually like, 50% 50% of all real estate transactions don't end up on the MLS. Really? So there's That's a wild. huge like real estate economy that takes place off of the MLS. I think real estate is so unique in the sense that it is so competitive, but at the same time, it's so relationship-based even from real estate agent to real estate agent. There's so much cross-selling going on and all kinds of stuff. I always thought that was really cool. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I want to... So the, for the original question, what do I want to accomplish in the next five years? I want to transition not out of residential real estate, but definitely more into the real estate investment role. Like I just want a different seat at the table where I'm deploying my capital on real estate assets, managing high quality assets, and learning how to use other people's money for these real estate real estate investments. Um, and I'm already starting to do that with the build to rent, mm-hmm. things like that. So um yeah, just growing as a as an investor is like the theme for these next five years. You mentioned at one point, either on or off air, I forget, but getting into potentially commercial as well. Is that something that you're looking at in that time horizon, five years, or do you think do you see that as being further out? Yeah. So uh, don't tell my broker this, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Like the sooner the better. Honestly, I do want to make a, a clean exit out of residential real estate once I do jump into commercial. Um, the, the logic behind that is 
you know, you can only give 100% of your time and energy to one thing. Mm -hmm. It might as well be the biggest and baddest thing that it can be. Highest leverage. Highest leverage. And, um, you know, the, the most leverage you can find in residential real estate is selling luxury, which is why I'm at a luxury brokerage. It makes sense. The optics are good. And it's a lot easier to go take down a luxury listing if... I tell you, hey, you, did you know Tiffany Pantosi, my team leader, we listed Shaq's house like a year and a half ago, yeah. $12, $12 million. Like we sell a, lux a lot of luxury real estate. We work with a lot of custom home builders and I'm actually working on a, you know, custom, I'm, I'm about to sell a custom listing right now in Winter Park. Like it, the optics definitely look good, but um, but yeah, I mean, commercial real estate, that's where, that's where the magic happens, man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, going back to being that ultimate real estate investor that I want to be one day, all well-capitalized real investors, real estate investors own commercial real estate. So, um, so yeah, I definitely see that in my future, probably in the next two and a half years or so. It's got to be even that much more rewarding too, being able to work on like huge buildings. I mean, we were talking a lot about how much construction there is going on in downtown Orlando right now. We both live in downtown and just being able to be a part of like one of those huge buildings that's being built like right in your backyard must be incredible. I mean, real estate is so cool because, you know, like someone owns every piece of property that you drive by every single yeah. day, every single family house, every commercial real estate building, every business that you drive by. Someone has a long term plan with that. And being in commercial real estate, you get to advise people on how to take those properties down, how to manage those properties effectively and exit those properties successfully in a way that maximizes their time in the property and fiscally as well, like with the IRS. Um, so it's definitely something that I'm going to aspire to, uh, you know, it's definitely, I definitely see it in my future. Um, just, I don't, I'm not done in residential yet. So yeah, you gotta figure out how to get there and do it the right way. Make your clean break. Like you said, Yeah, exactly. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is just in general, how do you feel about the state of the real estate market? Whatever your preference is, you could kind of focus on the central Florida market or the market at large right now. How do you feel about the state of the market? I know you mentioned earlier off air, I think, that you're bullish. Um, does that kind of encompass the entire feeling about the market? So when we talk about the market, we talk about the national market and the local market, right? My insight, I can give you the best insight on the local economy. And I can also give you my opinion on the national economy and what interest rates are going to do. I have this microeconomy theory that primary markets like Miami, Tampa, Orlando, uh, you know, Dallas, just these primary markets where there's uh, good employment centers, you know, a lot of jobs, a lot of job growth, and uh, a lot of economic driving forces. Those markets will be a lot more insulated and. Uh, protected from the downward pressure that we're seeing on from interest rates. Population growth is another thing too. Like if population is constantly rising and there's not enough homes or inventory to house these people, then we're constantly going to have a supply issue driving prices up. So it really depends on what the long-term monetary policy is from the Federal Reserve. Um, Inflation data came out yesterday and it looked pretty good and, you know, rates went down today. So it really it really depends on what, where interest rates are and where they stand over these next few years. But um, I, I'm bullish on the local economy for sure. I think 
because of the supply issue, real estate is a very safe investment. Even if you buy something with 5% down and you don't have a lot of equity in it right now, and you feel like we're in a downward trending market, your home's still going to appreciate if you're in a primary market. If you're in a secondary market or a tertiary market, like, you know, Daytona Beach or mm-hmm. Gainesville or, you know, even in those markets, we live in Florida, so it's hard to see negative price growth in those areas. Yeah, Florida's population Florida's, is exploding. Yeah, That's Florida Florida's amazing, but like for whatever reason, if you decide to move to the West Coast, you can definitely expect uh, you know, a lot of downward pressure on pricing. But um it it really depends on what you buy. You know, if it's if it's a move in ready home and it's completely renovated, I think there's always gonna be demand for that. You can call it luxury. Luxury is not a price point, by the way, it's like an experience. Mm. So if the home is move in ready and it's renovated it it doesn't matter whether it's 350,000 or you know 1.2 million or 5 million if it's renovated and it's in a good area it's going to sell yeah yeah very cool so i have a couple repeat questions that i'd like to ask in every podcast we talked about this a little bit off air but my first one is um and I, i'll use your kind of starting point of being 19 and first getting into real estate for this if you could go back in time and talk to a young Aaron at 19 when you're first getting into real estate, having the wisdom and knowledge that you have now, having learned over the years being in real estate, what are a couple of things you would do differently and why? Yeah, I would definitely tell my younger self, don't let other people's opinions get in the way of you taking the action that you want to take. They're not paying your bills and you know, you, you just have to go for it. it the, the biggest risk is not taking one. And, um, to go after bigger deals. Bigger deals are going to find you more leverage. Of course, you want to lean into your your sphere and take care of your people, but uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't be doing more and connecting with people who, you know, are are accomplishing what you want to accomplish. So uh, definitely surrounding yourself by people who push you, inspire you, and motivate you, but also not letting other people's opinions get in the way. Love that. Love that. And then the other question that I have for you is, And the show is called Profession Session. I have kind of a thesis with the show that is really why I started it. And it's that many different things can be a profession and being a professional looks different to everyone. I always get a different answer from this question. But the question is, what does it mean to you personally to be a professional? So Profession Session, I love the name, by the way. Thank you. It uh, definitely rolls off the tongue. But being a professional means that you hold yourself to a standard that most people don't and not in an arrogant way but you know as an entrepreneur as a business owner as a professional of any sort you're holding yourself to a standard that again most people don't have the luxury to right and you can't hold yourself you can't hold anyone else to a standard that you don't hold yourself to and i think that's what it means to be a professional is holding yourself to a certain standard and allowing other people to be infected by that and to see that, okay, this is how you operate your business. I'm going to follow suit. Yeah. I love that. Well, Aaron, anything else you would want to leave the audience with? Um, you know, don't let fear get in the way of investing in real estate or at least participating in the market. Even if you don't have a lot of capital, you can definitely, you know, learn from people who are wholesaling real estate. Creative finance is a phenomenal way to get into the real estate market. We didn't even talk about that today. But um, we still got time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, don't let fear get in the way of you getting in the market and just learn the different ways that you can get involved in the real estate market. Um, 
wherever you're at. Everything is relative, right? So don't compare yourself to someone who's doing a ton of deals or doing a bunch of fix and flips or wholesaling a bunch of properties just because, you know, they're on your social media and you follow them. Like understand where you're at, know thyself, know where you want to go and understand how to close the gap. Closing the gap is where all the growth happens. And if you're not looking at your goals every day as far as where you want to go, then it's easy to get distracted or, or compare yourself to other people who look like they're doing more. But um, definitely take advantage of the self-awareness that you have and the amazing economy that we're in. Like, you only get one shot at this life, yeah. so might as well make the most of it. I love that, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I learned a ton about real estate and also just a ton about entrepreneurship, growth, being a business owner and just growing personally. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This Absolutely. Is, this has been great. And I will put everything on how to find Aaron in the show notes if you're listening on audio or the description if you're watching on video. And this has been Profession Session. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning into Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. Stay tuned for new episodes every week and short clips of deep dives into specific topics that I put out on different social media channels. We can be found on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, all major podcast platforms. You can find my guest in the details of this video or podcast. And if you happen to know a young standout business owner, professional, or entrepreneur that you would think would be a good fit for Profession Session, DM me or get in contact with me anywhere and just let me know and they could be the next to tell their story here until next time again this has been profession session stay focused stay hustling and stay networking